RTHK. With music, news and information, this is Radio 3. Good morning from me, Peter Lewis. Welcome to Thursday. It's 8.03 in Hong Kong on the 3rd of March. This is Money Talk on Radio 3. Hong Kong witnessed another record high in its daily COVID-19 tally yesterday with over 55,000 new infections. That's a 70% rise from over 32,500 cases reported on Tuesday. The total number of infections in the current wave, which started in December, is now over 280,000. However, Hong Kong University researchers estimate that the true count is about 1.7 million people, almost a quarter of the SAR's population. Chief Executive Carrie Lam on Wednesday reiterated that the government has no plans for a widespread lockdown to coincide with a mass COVID testing exercise set to take place this month. Hong Kong food suppliers urged the public to stop panic buying, saying there were enough supplies to go around. In the latest travel advisory, the US State Department has advised Americans not to travel to Hong Kong due to COVID-19, the risk of parents being separated from their children and the arbitrary enforcement of local laws. Tens of thousands of residents have fled the city because of the stringent COVID measures, with official figures showing a net outflow of over 71,000 residents in February, up from about 15,000 the previous month. Fitch Ratings warned Tuesday that global energy price shocks related to the Russia-Ukraine crisis exacerbate risks of inflation. Fed Chairman Jerome Powell confirmed his support for a quarter-point interest rate rise at the central bank's March meeting, despite the uncertainties caused by the invasion of Ukraine. And Eurozone consumer prices rose by a record 5.8% in February, heaping pressure on the European Central Bank when it meets next week. Energy prices rose by a record 31.7% in February, while food prices rose 6.1%. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by personal wealth advisor Enzio von Fahl and Quentin Webb from the Wall Street Journal. The view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold at Safe Pro Group. On Wall Street, US stocks rallied despite a surge in oil prices and bond yields. The S&P 500 index rose 1.9% to 4,387 after falling 1.6% on Tuesday. The Dow rallied 596 points to 33,891. The Nasdaq Composite Index jumped 1.6% higher to 13,752. In Europe, the regional stock 600 index added 0.9%. London's FTSE 100 climbed 1.4%. Shares of Russia's largest lender, Sherbank, crashed over 78% on the London Stock Exchange after it announced that it was no longer able to supply liquidity to its European subsidiary banks. And the Austrian offshoot of Sherbank fell into insolvency. Sherbank's European arm was ordered to close by the European Central Bank. Stock market trading on the Moscow exchange was suspended for the third day in a row on Wednesday. The Vanek Russia ETF trading in New York fell almost 12%, taking its losses for this week to almost 54%. Hong Kong stocks fell to a two-year low on Wednesday, 
fueled by growing fears over the Russian invasion of Ukraine and as the city battles its most severe COVID-19 outbreak to date. The Hang Seng Index tumbled 1.8% or 418 points to 22,344. The Hang Seng Tech Index plunged 2.7% and the Shanghai Composite Index lost 0.1%, ending the day at 3,484. Shares of mainland property developer Shimeo dropped almost 8% in Hong Kong after the company said it would seek a payment extension from holders of asset-backed notes guaranteed by Shimeo Group, trading in Shimeo's bond, which matures on September the 19th was halted in Shanghai following a 24% drop yesterday. And the stock price of Russian aluminium giant Rusal, which is the only major Russian company listed in Hong Kong, plunged 26%. Global commodity prices on Wednesday jumped to the highest in more than a decade as the price of key fuels like oil and natural gas rallied. Brent crude oil rose 9% to trade at $114.61, the highest level since 2014. Both the US benchmark West Texas Intermediate and Brent are now up more than 40% year to date as big energy consumers boycott Russian oil, which on Wednesday was trading at a more than $18 discount to Brent crude oil. Despite the disruption to Russian exports, OPEC and its oil-producing allies, which includes Russia, said it wouldn't increase monthly production above the 400,000 barrels a day previously agreed last July. Wheat hit a 14-year high, breaching $10 a bushel as grain traders suspended their operations in Ukraine and gold fell 1% to $1,930 an ounce. Tuesday's strong rally in debt markets reversed yesterday after Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said the Fed would raise interest rates this month despite the uncertainties caused by the invasion of Ukraine. The US 10-year Treasury bond yield soared 17 basis points to 1.89%. And the US dollar is unchanged against the euro at $1.11 and a quarter cents. The buck's up half a percent against the Japanese yen at 115 and a half. Sterling is stronger at $1.34 and 10 Hong Kong dollars and 47 cents. Chinese yuan is at 6.32 versus the dollar in offshore markets. Bitcoin is unchanged at $43,900. And around Asian stock markets uh, this morning, uh, first of all, the ASX 200 in Australia uh, is up about, uh, is, sorry, let me try and get the right price for you, uh, is up about 0. Uh, 0.1%, uh, sorry, 0.8%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan has risen about 1% at the open. Cosby is also up 1% in South Korea and futures markets pointing to a rise of about 130 points for the Hang Seng at the open this morning. Let's welcome our guests. We have with us in our Queensway studio, personal wealth advisor, Enzio von Farr. Morning, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And on the phone, Quinton Webb, Asia Market Editor at the Wall Street Journal. Morning to you, Quinton. Good morning, Peter. Um, let me start in Hong Kong. As we heard earlier, another record high in daily COVID-19 cases, over 53,000 new infections. Uh, the total number of infections in the current wave is now over 280,000. Hong Kong University researchers estimate that the true count is about 1.7 million people, almost a quarter of the SAR's population. 
Chief Executive Carrie Lam reiterated yesterday that the government has no plans for a widespread lockdown to coincide with mass COVID testing exercise set to take place this month. And... Um, and food suppliers urged the, pa- uh, the public to stop panic buying, saying there were enough supplies to go round. Investor confidence in Hong Kong has plunged. The Hang Seng Index, as you heard, at a two-year low. Bearish speculators represent about 16% of total activity now in the local equity market, the highest proportion on record. And the Hong Kong dollar has fallen to 7.8150 in the lower end of its trading band. Residents are converting the local currency into Chinese yuan at the fastest pace in more than a decade. And home prices have slid to an 11-month low, according to official government statistics. Bank of America predicted yesterday that home prices will drop as much as 10% this year. Um, NCO, let's get your thoughts, first of all, um, on some of that. First of all, um, new record highs in, um, in, in Omicron cases, although the University of Hong Kong says the true count could be 1.7 million people. Yeah, well, I mean, just as, a, as an academic, it's very difficult to, to measure. I mean, what is it? how do you define infection, for instance? So um, we can sort of cast a little bit of a blind eye on the but on on the government figure of, or whoever put this 280,000 out there, that is about um, that represents 3.6% um, of the population, whilst the 200, the 2.7 the million represents 22% of our population. So there's a slight difference there in the numbers. I tend to go with the larger number because if it were the smaller number, then why is the government making such a fuss about mm. controlling it? The true here? number could well be somewhere in the middle, couldn't it? As, as often is if the case. If not higher, it depends on how you define um, it, define infection, but absolutely it could be. And again, I still think that you can't do a deal with nature. Perversely, we're probably at the nadir, the bottom of this contagion. In other words, things can only improve because we're going to start getting herd immunity setting in in a couple of months' time. And I think that will be very good news, regardless of how many lockdowns you have. The bugs don't have need permanent residency and they get free visas to come to Hong Kong. What do you make of the impact this is having on our markets? We have uh, the stock market at a two-year low. The Hong Kong dollar has mm. fallen into the lower part of its uh, trading band. Property prices uh, are sliding. People are converting Hong Kong dollars into yuan at the fastest pace in more than 10 years. What do you make of all of that? Well, I'm afraid that it's just lack of faith in Hong Kong, sadly. I think it's one can't just say it's because of the COVID because the U.S. market over the same period has gone up by 36% or so. So I don't think it's, it's just the COVID. Um, I realize that what China wants, and I think that's, you know, that's their business. We can't, we have nothing to say there. But I do think that the the lack of structural vision stuff here, the, the rotting English, the high prices, the the sort of the jerking around on the government, this miscommunication on the one hand saying to everybody we're going to have a lockdown and then we'll actually know you weren't listening, we're not going to have one. These things make people scared and that's why they're leaving. They're, they're more scared of ending up in Penny's Bay that, by the way, is run by prison wardens than it is um, than they are of getting COVID. Now, that's not mm-hmm. a good sign and we don't need to live in fear in Hong Kong just because there is an illness. If anything, the government should be taking care of its people, not scaring them the whole time. Let's bring Quinton in. Quinton, what do you make of, of the market reaction to all this? Because we started off the year with the Hong Kong stock market certainly being quite resilient, didn't it? But it now seems to have crumbled. That's right. Um, and I guess there's a few things going on here. As Andrew says, it's not just about COVID, of course. You know, um, Hong Kong has been quite badly affected, as we all know, by the Common Prosperity Campaign and, you know, the kind of crackdowns that has entailed on property 
on Chinese tech, etc. Uh, and I think one thing that was perhaps going on yesterday as well was that, you know, whilst uh, U.S. bond yields were falling, that was putting some pressure on some of the big financial stocks like uh, HBC, for example, mm. because those companies tend to do better when yields are higher. So I wonder if some of that might be reversed today because overnight we saw a big jump in Treasury yields. Um, but, yeah, there is also, you know, of course, to some extent, the market is largely about Chinese companies rather than just about pure Hong Kong companies. But to the extent that Hong Kong companies are a big part of the market, too, they're under pressure, given the kind of obvious economic slowdown that we're facing here. And, you know, as Bank of America noted in the report that you cited earlier, there's also this issue where we are yoked to U.S. interest rates. And as U.S. interest rates go up, that might not necessarily be great for Hong Kong right now. Mm. And that's a big point yes. because Jerome Powell has made it clear interest rates are going to be going up starting uh, this month and there could still be you know, six or seven rate rises uh, this year. That's going to be tough for Hong Kong, isn't it? Right, exactly. So it's not necessarily what the Hong Kong economy needs right now, but you know, in order to keep the linked exchange rate system working properly, we probably need to follow exactly mm. you know, what the US Fed is doing. Mm. Enzio, what do you make of some of these economic forecasts? Financial Secretary Paul Chen, uh, in his budget last week, was quite optimistic. He was saying uh, he estimates growth of 2 to 3.5% this year. When I asked him on Friday why he was more than optimistic than the markets, he says maybe the markets hasn't got information that he has. But we, oh. saw, on, um, we saw here Bank of America downgrading its forecasts. What do you think? Well, starting off with the Japanese saying the blind are not scared of snakes. And I think that the anybody here who has half a bit of eyesight knows that this thing place is slowing down. I don't trust the unemployment figures in the least that last month the number of employed went up, not down, is just patently wrong, I believe. Um, I rarely use that word in my 40-year career in finance. I think actually our growth is going to be between 0.01 and kind of thing and, and 0.5% this year at the mm. outside because – um, don't tell us that he has information that we don't um, because we see people leaving in droves, offices being shut, rents falling massively, which is not bad from a long-term perspective, but from a short-term perspective, look at all the bars and the hotels and restaurants just having to shut down. That doesn't cause unemployment. And how does that then create? And that's again, goes straight back into this $10,000 handout that we discussed last week. How is that going to really help anybody except Watsons and and, mm. and Mannings um, it's instead of really the, the poor wretches, the really poorest of the poor in Hong Kong, who really should be getting that, that $60 billion big time? Mm. Quentin, the other thing, of course, that's happening is, uh, well, I don't know whether exodus is the right word or not, but a lot of people left Hong Kong mm. in February, net outflow of over 71,000 people, up from 15,000 um, in January. The U.S. State Department has advised Americans not to travel to Hong Kong. Quentin, what sort of impact is this having? Uh, well, this is negative as well, as NDO says, you mm. know, and in fact, there's some suggestions that the outflows could increase, you know, if if we continue to be stuck in this scenario of kind of strict COVID controls and rampant Omicron infections. Um, obviously, that's not good for consumption. Um, it's pretty difficult for employers as well, because you have this kind of talent squeeze where it's hard both to att attract talent in Hong Kong and to retain talent um you know there's some argument that in the medium term it kind of 
downgrades Hong Kong as a business hub in the region because it becomes easier to put people in Singapore or other places as well. Now, in some cases, actually, it's quite hard to move people permanently, but it, it you know, it's not it's not good for Hong Kong. Do you think those people will come back, or is this the the risk? Is I suppose that when people do move, even if it's temporary, these things have a habit of becoming permanent quite quickly. Yeah, I think that's a very uh, important open question. In some cases, I would imagine people will come back, but in other cases, they might not. And one important factor, of course, is you know, I think uh, for some of the expat community, what's driving the move is concern about their families and concern that. You know, they don't want to be necessarily separated from their children. Um, and so if you move the whole family, uh, you know, that tends to be quite a sticky move because maybe, you know, you find a way into schools in a new location, etc. It becomes quite hard to then up sticks again, move back to Hong Kong quickly. It's a bit like us all working from home now. I, I think that we've got, kind of got so used to it that going back to the office, even once that the office is open again, that will be a very, very slow uptake, if one at all. Um, and I, the other point, of course, that people are leaving is because, as as um, we all know, is, is because of the whole educational thing that they just the kids aren't getting educated here. That's a two-year scar that's going to stay with them the rest of their lives, the poor mm. kids. Okay, let me turn our attention uh, to Ukraine. I want to ask you about some of the latest developments there in the fallout from the Russian invasion. Fitch ratings warn that global energy price shocks related to the Russian-Ukraine crisis exacerbate risks of inflation. We've seen global commodity prices yesterday jump to the highest in more than a decade. Oil is surging in particular, as is wheat. But Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell says despite that, um, we're going to see a quarter point interest rate uh, hike at this uh, this week's Central Bank March meeting and inflation in the Eurozone at a new record high. Um, what, what's the impact of all of this going to be, do you think, on the economies out here? Stagflation. I just think that um, the... It, it's it's not because I told you so. We've been wrong enough in our careers, but um, in our career. But the, the the simple fact is that on the commodity side, for instance, there's because of the war disruption, there's less production. The Russians will probably create bottlenecks, making phony shortages in production. People can't get to the oil because they can't buy the Russian stuff. So that's one. Then you're going to get the financial system hugely disrupted because of the sanctions, and I think mm. that's going to have its tolls. So I'm still sticking with this um, stagflation thing. I'm delighted to say that even the Financial Times, and it's infinite wisdom, of course, in, on the 26th of February said conflict raises the possibility of stagflation. Well, there we have it. Do you think so, that's true even in Asia, or is Asia more immune to that? I don't think so, because I think that the, um, that the say, even in China, whilst we do feel that there will be a lot of policy loosening going on, and that will help growth. The, the fact is that China gets a lot of its wheat, I believe, from the Ukraine. And so if that goes out the window, well, then up go the wheat prices and the bread prices and the rice, etc. Not rice, obviously, but maybe in China. So um, I, I think that China is not going to be it's, – it's structurally going to a, it's to a slower growth trajectory, excuse me, in China itself. And that's going mm -hmm. to also have to be factored in. Quentin, what's the market impacts of all of this? We're, we're seeing, um, well, certainly in the commodity markets, they've made up their minds, haven't they? There's, there's a big market repricing going on there because of the impact on energy and agricultural products and the inflationary aspects of that. Stocks can't quite make up their minds what to do about this. 
Right. The medium-term question, I think, is to what extent this, you know, forces the Fed and other important central banks to keep raising rates, even if that provokes Mm. a slowdown output or perhaps a recession. Uh, You know, because it's very different, for example, from 2018, where the Fed started very gingerly trying to kind of tighten monetary policy. At this point now, you have already very elevated levels of inflation. You also have the risk that... um, inflation expectations get entrenched and so you get this kind of self-reinforcing cycle of, of, of faster price rises. And so, you know, potentially the Fed needs to kind of keep raising to the point where it risks sparking a recession. And that would reverberate around the global economy and it would, you know, inevitably provoke a bit of a sell-off in, in, in equity markets in the US, in the US and elsewhere. What do you both think um, these financial sanctions on Russia, which have been surprisingly well coordinated between the EU and the US and and their allies um, and seem to be having an impact? But what does it do for the dollar's future as as the global reserve currency? Is it just going to encourage uh, countries like China and others to wean themselves off the dollar quicker? Two things. First of all, it's going to obviously strengthen against the the ruble. No prizes for that. We all know that the ruble is falling. So imported inflation big time in Russia. Um, the second point that I was reading about in today's FT was that the a lot of people in, in Russia are actually now hiding into cryptocurrencies to get around these sanctions. But I do actually think that the sanctions are going to bite, especially the cutoff from the SWIFT system, the, the impeding the businesses of, of these two big banks, things like that. I think that's going to make life very difficult for the Russians. So there's going to be a lot of social unrest in, in Russia, I was just about to say, China. So, so Mr. Xi and Mr. Putin both are facing the same issues of social stability. Mr. Xi, again, having pointed that very, very much out in case of Hong Kong, that we've got to keep the social stability here. Quentin, final, very quick word to you. Well, yeah, I think there's a short-term issue, which is, you know, can Russia and China and others find workarounds? Uh, it seems like it's quite hard to do so, partly because Chinese banks, for example, don't want to be caught in secondary sanctions. And then there's a longer-term question which you raised, which is, does this kind of strengthen the resolve of China, Russia, and other countries that aren't aligned with the U.S. to find better alternatives to the dollar system? I would think it probably does, but it's not quite clear yet exactly how that would work. Okay, thank you both very much. That was Quentin Webb, Asia Market Editor at The Wall Street Journal and Personal Wealth Advisor, Enzio von File. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK 8.25 on the phone is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group in Taiwan. Morning, Ross. Good morning. Um, let me get your assessment of, of the, uh, the impact of uh, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, particularly in terms of what it means for China. What do you think this does for China's partnership uh, with Russia? Does it put strains on it at all? Well, there there certainly be some strains. Uh, for example, there was a recent piece in the last few hours about uh, the effect this might have on, on the railway uh, bridge. Uh, it was one part of the Belt and Road. Uh, to transit goods uh, back and forth from China to to Europe uh, in both directions, uh, but this does part of this route does traverse Russia. You know, it's an interesting 
kind of side story to the main story. And, and uh, if there's going to be sanctions and uh, logistics companies don't want to work uh, via Russia, you know, what does that mean for that option? I'll, uh, obviously, at the minimum, I'll have to ship back to, to see, uh, greater use of sea freight. Uh, so you know, there, there's just, just a, a lot of these issues that uh, I think both, both the political side as well as the economic side that we probably haven't even thought of or not getting great enough attention mm-hmm. beyond the obvious political discussion, which is hey, oh, well, what is the extent of the political support that China will continue to give Russia? One of the questions on a lot of people's minds is, did President Xi know about this in advance? It's sort of, uh, the camps seem to be divided on this. What, do you have any thoughts? Now, there's some recent reporting about that as well, that supposedly uh, Russia had provided certain amount of information or intelligence to China prior to the invasion, and China may have asked that uh, an invasion not occur during the Olympics. Uh, whether Whether or not uh, uh, Russia so graphically described their plans to China is going to be a matter of pure speculation. Mm-hmm. But at a minimum, obviously, uh, like any other major government around the world, China uh, saw the tensions rising and the military preparations, the movement of troops to the border. I mean, you know, just on open source information alone, China would have known what other governments knew or were speculating uh, was a possibility uh, as we advance from March into February. Uh, sorry, from January into February. Does um, China provide Russia with a way out from sanctions? It's, uh, Russia holds about 13% of its reserves in Chinese yuan. So does China provide an opportunity now for Russia to do trade in yuan, sell to China some of its agricultural and oil exports, and in reverse, uh, China sells some of its manufactured goods that, that, that Russia needs and it's been cut off from? Well, whether that's a way out or a buffer from Russia remains to be seen, especially given the the scope of of the sanctions from most of the rest of the international community. Uh, It'll relieve some of the pain uh, for whether it's the agricultural sector or the energy sector and the people who work in those sectors in Russia, but uh, how great the economic problems are going to be in Russia still remains to be seen, and how much China's trade with Russia could mitigate what is probably going to be some serious economic problems also remains to be seen. And again, there is this concern, as was discussed in the previous segment, about secondary sanctions and keeping in mind that Chinese companies still have enormous trade with the United States and Europe as well. So there are, they are definitely going to be thinking about that aspect of it as well. Of course, there's precedent because the Chinese companies, uh, to, to some extent, continue to trade with North Korea or Iran, you know, other targets of international sanctions. Uh, but does it really relieve those pain, the pain in those countries? Probably not. Does it help mm-hmm. the, the political leadership of those countries maintain uh, their, their authority? Yeah, frankly, the answer to that has been yes. <laughs> China has always said it wants to improve relations, particularly with the EU. This is an opportunity for, for China to do that, doesn't it? By, by mending its bridges uh, with, with the EU, sharing their desire to end this conflict and working with them on this. Uh, that's a great question, but whether or not it means uh, achieving that via joining the sanctions you know, fully or, or almost in their entirety, or it means trying to play the role of peacemaker, uh, that also remains to be seen. But the, you know, the precedent historically is that that's not a role that China has, has typically played in the, these kinds of international disputes where it, it plays the role of negotiator, uh, the Chinese leadership shuttling back and forth between the capitals, whether it's the foreign minister or special envoy. Uh, that's typically not a role we've seen for China in foreign affairs. I mean, the option is there 
for them to carve out that role. Uh, but again, based on precedent, I wouldn't expect that. Okay, thanks very much, Ross. Have a great day. Uh, that's Ross Feingold, Business De- Development Director at Safepro Group over in Taipei. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. And in the markets this morning, the ASX 200 is rebounding up about 1%. Similar story for both the Nikkei 225 in Japan and the Cosby in South Korea. Futures markets pointing to a rebound of about 130 points for the Hang Seng at the open. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil trading at $114.61 a barrel. That's still a nine-year high. Uh, Gold is at $1,930 an ounce. That's it for me. Please do join me again tomorrow morning for the final Money Talk of the Week at 8 o'clock. Stay tuned for the COVID update with Jim Gould and James Ockenden after the news. The weather forecast, mainly cloudy, mist patches at first, sunny intervals during the day, maximum temperature of around 22 degrees. It's going to be warm during the day in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 18 degrees and it's 82% relative humidity. 31 and a half, here's Andrew Shrosky with the Half Hour News. A top epidemiologist says a citywide testing scheme will be useful in helping to control the current COVID outbreak. But Professor Benjamin Cowling from the University of Hong Kong School of Public Health said if the purpose was to get the number of cases back down to zero, it would consume a huge amount of resources for very little public health benefit. Professor Cowling also said the number of COVID cases in Hong Kong could peak in about seven days, but it would only be a halfway mark. Transmission, then I think the sooner the better, and the more stringent the measures taken, the more impact that it will have. Even though we're approaching the peak, having additional measures in place to reduce transmission will reduce the number of infections, will reduce the number of severe cases, and will reduce the number of deaths. On the other hand, though, what I've heard is that the mass testing might be with the idea of getting us all the way back down to zero. I said earlier, within about two months, the case numbers will be very low anyway. Smoking is bad for your health, especially during a pandemic. New research shows that removing your surgical mask to smoke could increase your chances of catching COVID. That's according to a University of Hong Kong professor who led a study that found a link between smoking and a higher risk of contracting the virus. The researchers from Hong Kong U and the Chinese University studied European data and published their findings in the journal Addiction. Ryan Aoyoung from HKU's School of Public Health explains the findings behavior and COVID-19 risk is not really due to reduced lung function and increased risk of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. So there could be other possibilities. For example, we know that smoking can induce inflammation. Apart from biological explanations, uh, some people also argue that it might be because of the behavior where uh, when people smoke, they have to take up the mask. So essentially that exposes the smokers to the SARS-CoV-2 virus and has, that might also increase the risk of contracting COVID. Overseas, an overwhelming majority of member countries at the UN General Assembly have voted to deplore the Russian incursion in Ukraine, calling for an immediate withdrawal. In the rare emergency session after more than two days of debate, only five countries voted against the resolution. They included Syria and North Korea. China abstained on the vote. The nation's ambassador to the UN, Zhang Jun, explained Beijing's position. 
Regrettably, the draft resolution submitted to today's emergency special session for vote has not undergone full consultations with the whole membership, nor does it take into consideration the history and the complexity of the current crisis. It does not highlight the importance of the principle of indivisible security or the urgency of promoting political settlement and stepping up diplomatic efforts. These are not in line with China's consistent position. Therefore, we had no choice but to abstain in the voting. Ukraine says a delegation has left Kiev for a second round of peace talks today with representatives from Russia, just across the border in Belarus. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said Moscow remains committed to the demilitarization of Ukraine.